Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. In this episode, I interview Mance Harmon. He is the co-founder of Swirls Labs and Hedera. Hedera was and still is one of the most significant projects in the decentralized world. Uh, They don't exactly use the blockchain methodology. He describes how Hedera came about, uh, specifically the science project that his partner was working on that turned into this groundbreaking deep tech um, initiative into blockchain world. We talked about how they started Hedera, how they grew the organization by doing enterprise sales, effectively establishing trust with partnerships in large corporations, what their plans are to grow in the future. Uh, They have roughly a $1.5 billion market cap. They're one of the most successful projects out there, at least one of the most reputable. Uh, We talked about the impact that they have on the environment, their ESG initiatives, uh, that they are 74 times more efficient from an energy usage perspective than Visa. They're like 9 million times or 93 million times more efficient than Bitcoin, uh, which is a difference of proof of work versus proof of stake. Uh, We went deep into the tech. We talked about how the node validators work, um, the intricacies of the system that they have built, how they've gone from effectively math into a full-fledged multi-billion dollar project, uh, some of the challenges along the way, touched on climate change at the end, but all in all, this was an awesome conversation. Uh, Mance is an expert in this this field, specifically, obviously, on Hedera, uh, but more broadly about the structure of uh, decentralization and the direction we're going as a society. So I had an awesome time meeting with him, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Here is Mance Harmon. All right, Mance. Well, just like that, we're recording, we're live. I'm super excited to be chatting with you. Uh, I love what you've worked on. You've had a, a, a prolific career in different areas. Uh, maybe if you could, I, I, I'm f- quite familiar with Hedera, the project, but I'd love to hear from you what you saw early on that was so inspiring to you to dive in and create the uh, organization formation you did. I know you met your co-founder, but I'd love to hear what those early days were like. Yeah. Well, the early days go pretty far back. And the interesting thing is when we started all of this, it had nothing to do with Bitcoin. Uh, so I've been working with Lehman Baird. He's my co-founder since 1993. We met as young officers in the U.S. Air Force doing research on machine learning 
basic research in machine learning way back then, working for the senior executive in the Air Force doing AI. And so it's always been deep tech. We've always had an interest in going really deep into technology. Um, we both did that. And then we went on to teach computer science at the Air Force Academy. Lehman went off to do some special programs. And I then went to manage this massive program for the Missile Defense Agency, building a simulator that makes it possible for the U.S. and its allies to play war games, to figure out how to protect ourselves, our population centers, from incoming nuclear ballistic missiles, ICBMs. And uh, had a fantastic experience there. Did, you know, it was a lot of fun. We decided we wanted to be entrepreneurs. And so we raised a small fund, uh, a small round of funding from friends and family. And I quit the Air Force and we dove head first into this world of startups. And that was back in 2000. Yeah, 2000, 1999, just before the bubble burst in 1999 and 2000. We pursued those and, and sold one and then went off and did some identity stuff for a big company in the Bay Area and started another company, moved to Texas, all of that sort of prelude. And then Lehman in 2012 wanted to just solve a really hard math problem because that's what he does. I mean, he, he he's a true scientist of world-class caliber. And uh, he wanted to be able to take a consensus algorithm or build a consensus algorithm that achieves two things simultaneously, both achieving the theoretical limit of what's possible in terms of security. He wanted to achieve the very best, the most secure consensus algorithm possible while simultaneously maximizing its performance. And there's always been this trade-off between the two. Faster you are, this you, you basically always have had to sacrifice security. And if you wanted to be ultra secure, then you couldn't scale to more than half a dozen, maybe a dozen nodes max. And he worked for years and, and it had nothing to do with Bitcoin. When he started this in 2012, he had some ideas for how, you know, what we today call Web3 should work. And, but it had nothing to do with Bitcoin until 2015. In 2015, he solved the problem. Today, we call that hash graph. And through that period, those three years, what we observed was just that Bitcoin was taking off and made the market for what he had created, an asynchronous Byzantine fault-tolerant consensus algorithm, the hash graph. And so we knew, you know, wow, this is really important. And we've got to do something with it. And that's was he path. was he employed uh, academically to, at the time of this research? No, not then. He retired from the Air Force. I forget. Maybe it was two thousand nine or ten. That time frame. So you know he's been independent since then, uh, while doing various projects and things. But no, he just. He this was his free time. He was doodling, right? Yeah, this, this is how he sort of doodles, and uh, he he will come up with it's it's not just this. I mean, he has a list of hard problems that he wants to solve, and he'll work on one of these for some time until he comes to a dead end, and then he'll just sort of put it on the shelf, walk away, 
come back later, pick it up and, and do this. And, you know, there's a long list of these things. This is one of the ones that he became really serious about. And he cracked the nut in 2015. I, I mean, I remember all of those conversations. I, I sort of play the, the, you know, the sounding board, not that I can contribute academically, mm. but um, I will, I've been there to work with him through the details of these things. And I've seen it time and again, he'll go deep into the rabbit hole, hit a brick wall, come back out and say, okay, I proved to myself it won't work. Let's find a different way. And he figured it out for this, for this one. Hmm. And does he, or do you understand what the uh, maybe breakthrough was at the time when he had oh. previously hit a wall? Was it computational or, or procedural in the way that the algorithm is structured? It's not that it's, it really, it, it is computational, but it's all math. It's pure math, right? It's, hmm. um, what he does is he, will have some idea. He knows he wants to achieve a certain set of properties. And those properties are pretty much described in what assumptions you have to make about the type of attacker that you have to engage in the marketplace. What, what's strength of attacker do I want to defend against? And he made the most generous assumptions. In other words, he wanted the strongest attacker possible in the market. And what that means is he didn't assume, for example, that there's no such thing as a denial of service attack, right? If you look at the BFT related protocols in the market today, if you look at the layer ones that are BFT, if they're not a BFT, asynchronous BFT, then they have to make assumptions that just aren't realistic in the real world. And that's one of them, that, that there's no such thing as a distributed denial of service attack that can bring down the network. And he didn't want to... Can I, uh, can I yeah. ask you this? So BFT, a Byzantine fault tolerance, meaning specifically that the 51% attack, so if, some, if a group of nodes encompass more than 51% of the total network nodes, then they can change the consensus direction of a blockchain. Is that... Almost, think about almost, it? almost. When it comes to BFT, it's actually a third. If, if the bad actors represent a third or more of the voting power, if you want to use that term, voting power on the order of transactions, then they can do bad things. Yes, they can effectively steal the money, as it were. Hmm. And so, um, yeah, that, that's exactly right. And so he, he, um, you know, he didn't make any, he didn't take any shortcuts. And what he does is he tries to solve or prove that a particular algorithm, when I say prove, I mean, in the formal mathematical sense, everybody remembers proofs that they did back in mm -hmm. high school or college. He tried to prove that the algorithm would work. And he attacks that from two directions. One, he tries to prove that it works. And at the same time, he tries to prove it doesn't work. And you sort of work backwards in each direction and, and until you come together and then you have a proof, a formal proof that yes, it actually works. And he would often prove that it can't work. He, a formal proof that says this particular algorithm just can't work. And then he would give up on that approach and find something else. And, you know, hmm. we went through that process dozens and dozens of times to get. And, to and are these, um, 
Are, are these approaches, do you feel uh, systematic where you're kind of working through maybe an organized way of uh, developing the algorithm or is it more creative where it's uh, like, here's a concept of taking two random nodes or, and then here's another concept that's totally different. Like, do you have a sense for that? It is both. It is both. There's definitely an art to it, but it's also a science in the sense that there is a system for uh, proving it or disproving it. You know, there are tricks that mathematicians learn when learning how to prove things. And you bring that to bear. And that's kind of systematic with a creative element. And then there is just the creative element. How do you think outside of the box? How do you introduce new degrees of freedom where they didn't exist before to to find a solution? And it's it's very much both. Hmm. Yeah, when I look at the, I watched some of your presentations and just g- generally read read up on the technology, and to me, it feels like kind of a, um, uh, like a fragment, or it's a you have the blockchain, which is often displayed graphically linearly. You know, it's like one block after another, and the the hash graph is. Uh, I, I've heard some. I think somebody written, wrote on Quora, which I liked, was that it's chaos, but it's a with a perfectionist design. I don't know if you had heard that before, but I haven't really like that. that. Yeah. And uh, it, it looks, it looks, it looks to me, it almost more represents how nature would design a system where it's not linear, but it's kind of like a tree in formation where it looks like the branches are randomly uh, designed, but they're of course not. And it's designed for some optimum end goal. Yeah. Does that resonate? It, well, it does. I mean, if you, if you think about the way that blockchain works, I'll try to compare the two succinctly. <laughs> if you if you think about how blockchain works, you're right. There's this chain. Every node or miner, as it were, um, keeps a local copy of the quote blockchain. And you know this data structure that holds blocks of transactions. And when Alice wants to pay Bob a coin, she'll create a transaction and submit that to the network. Let's just say Bitcoin, for example. And um, that transaction goes to all the miners in the network. They collect, all miners collect all transactions. They group them into blocks, and then they compete with one another to try and solve this hard math problem. The one that solves it first takes their block of transactions and adds to it some proof that they actually solved the puzzle. And then they send their block to all the other miners. When those miners receive the block, they can check the proof to see that they, in fact, did solve the puzzle. And if they did, they take that block and they put it on top of the local their local copy of the blockchain. And that's how they all stay in sync. Mm-hmm. What's hard is that sometimes miners will solve the puzzle at about the same time and you'll end up with two blocks or three blocks, and you have to decide which one of those should I put on top of my chain and which one should I throw away. So if you think of it linearly, it's sort of like a hydra. It grows two or three heads, and you have to cut off all of them except for one. Well, it takes time for the community to figure out which head to leave or to keep. And so you have to slow everything down to give that community enough time to come to agreement about which head to keep. It's designed to be slow. 
So that's that's blockchain. And um, what Lehman did was come up with a data structure where everyone else, it, we've replaced miners with node operators because there's no mining in that traditional sense. It's not a proof of work system. It's a proof of stake system. But they all are participating in consensus. And what he did was realize that there is a way of taking these transactions. And when Alice wants to submit her transaction, she still sends that transaction to everybody in the network. All the node operators get all transactions. But when they're flowing in, they're not creating blocks. What happens is um, they're sharing information as they as they move these transactions through the network, they share the history of the nodes that that transaction went to. So they sort of share how these transactions get gossiped throughout the network, and they build up an internal representation of that of that movement that flow through the network. Mm-hmm. And all the miners, excuse me, node operators, have the same data structure. That is the hash graph. They all have it. Provably, it's the same. It's identical for every node operator. And then they there's enough information in this data structure, the hash graph, that they can use a decades-old consensus algorithm that is ABFT that normally would only work with six to a dozen nodes. And they can apply it here to their local copy of the data structure and solve the problem. And to be very brief, the way that they solve that is instead of asking the different nodes in the network, how would you vote on the order of transactions if I were to ask you to vote? They simply look at their copy of the hash graph and they can calculate it. There's enough information in the hash graph by just tracking how these transactions flow through the the network that they can take this old consensus algorithm and calculate what every node in the network would vote if they were to ask them to vote and send that vote information across the network. But they don't have to. And because they all have the same information, the same hash graph, and they're using the same consensus algorithm, when they calculate all that information, they come up with the exact same answer. And there you have it. You're in consensus on the order of transactions without the nodes having to send transactions to each other at all. There's zero bandwidth required for voting in this consensus algorithm. And that's the magic of it. Uh, it all happens in parallel. It's not linear like, like uh, proof-of-work blockchain is. It has these fantastic ABFT properties. And it's extremely efficient. It's the most efficient consensus algorithm in the market, assuming you're ABFT. That's that's the magic of how it all works. If you own crypto and leave it on the exchange where you bought it, like Coinbase, that is a mistake. We've heard the news lately. Exchanges closed, accounts frozen. We're learning the hard way that crypto on exchanges is not really in your control. So what can you do about it? Well, you can get a crypto wallet and control the crypto yourself. And that's why today's show is sponsored by ZenGo. These guys realize that Storing Bitcoin and storing crypto yourself can be difficult. It's risky to keep private keys. They realized this and said there's got to be a better way. So they created a crypto wallet that is fully recoverable. So say goodbye to lost Bitcoins. And the 
security of this wallet is incredible. It's a hacker's worst nightmare. They use a three-factor authentication, including 3D biometrics, so no one can access your wallet except for you. And Zengo realizes that at different levels of the crypto journey, you have different needs. So they offer 27 support and have real people that are available to contact directly within the app. They have a bunch of different coins, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Tezos, and more, and they have all sorts of NFTs available as well. So now for the first time, you can keep your crypto safe with the same tools that the big guys have used for years. Download Zengo, that's Z-E-N-G-O, and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's $20 back for your first purchase of $200 or more. Use code ATC and check out Zengo. And is the method that the uh, that the node validators use to um, cast the vote without actually casting the vote, the way that they predict that, is that through this randomization of the two two random node sampling or? Yeah, well, how, so how if I send that? a node, if I send a transaction to, say, you're a miner, Mike, you're a miner, uh, not a miner, a node operator, <laughs> excuse me, I send a, tra- I'm, I'm going to create a transaction, I send it to you, you receive it, and then you take that and you're going to send it on to another node in the network. And when you do, you're adding to that transaction a little bit of additional information. The last the hash of the last transaction that you created and the hash of the last transaction you received so it's two hashes Mm. last one you created the last one you received hashes from those you add them to my transaction and you send that on to you know some random node operator out there and then they take the transaction they just received from you they create the hash and they add that to their transaction that they're sending on to, you know, some random node operator. And so all the transactions flow through the network with these two hashes of additional information. And it turns out that if you, if you connect the, if you, with those hashes, you can create what we call the hash graph. And the hash graph simply represents the flow of information through all the nodes as opposed to the transactions themselves. That's what the hashes give you. It's how the information flows through the network. And with that amount of information, you can use the consensus algorithm to calculate what any given node would vote on the order of transactions for a given transaction. And you don't have to talk to them about it. It's just all there in your local copy of the hash graph. And and these, uh, these transactions, they're going from one node to another to another. They're not being broadcast out to all at once. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, it's something that we call gossip. Uh, gossip, yeah. yeah, yeah. Where did you come up with that, that, that phrase? It seems oh, no, it's, oddly it's, uh, no, no. So gossip protocols have existed for a long, long time. They're, so they're not new. They're, they're, okay, yeah, okay. It's, it's a term of art, I guess. Okay, okay. <laughs> and it, it is descriptive. I mean, it, it works in the way that, gossip really works that's the reason they have the the name so i you know node number one will send the transaction to two nodes and then each of those nodes sends the transaction on to two more random nodes it's the most efficient way of getting information distributed through a community of 
information recipients, nodes in this case. There's nothing more efficient than that, unless you just do a, a single broadcast to everybody all at once, that kind of thing. But short of that, uh, gossip is, is the most efficient way of getting information out. You know, I think one of the most underrated uh, parts of life is the is the the nomenclature given to some of the terms in computer science. It's like you y- you would use these terms, and most people would just never come across them. So they're just right. completely foreign language. But you have like you know, in computer science, you have slaves, we have sharding, we have gossip, we have. There's a whole. And it's fascinating to think about the derivative of those words. They're pulling, they're, they're, those words are being chosen for a reason in that they sort of abstractly represent the meaning of the words, but they're used in, in the computer science realm. So it's, uh, it's you know, interesting. It's funny you say that because I think that you, you go to college and you take classes and everything. A lot of the work really is learning the language in any given discipline. Mm. Once you understand the language and, you know, the nomic, if there were a glossary for everything you need, the, the definitions for which you could, if you could just absorb all of that, then just reasoning about the concepts really isn't that bad. It's just getting up to speed on the language that you have to learn to be able to reason in the first place is where a lot of the learning takes place. Yeah. And, and frankly, a lot of the stumbling, you know, there's not a appreciation for that, I find, in most areas, whether you're, uh, you know, literally learning a new language. Most people will say, just learn a phrase like, donde está el baño? And instead of categorizing, okay, what are the most common 500 words in this language? Just get that, get that as like the foundation and then build on it. Pr- could be, I mean, y- you taught computer science. Was this a technique you would encourage people where you say, go and learn these words or this approach and then, and then come in and, and learn concepts? I, I, I think it's a great idea. I don't remember actually doing that in the coursework that mm. we presented. I mean, we're pretty structured in what we have to teach or, or we were 20 plus years ago. But yes, I mean, even today, internally here, uh, we have a glossary that's being built out and it's expanding, right? As the, we just talked briefly before coming online here about uh, fan tokens, right? Well, that's a relatively new term. And two years ago, nobody had used it, or at least I hadn't heard of, of the term fan tokens. And so the language is is being developed at a really rapid rate right now in our industry. And, uh, you know, and that's half the battle is just keeping up with with yeah yeah maybe maybe we need a new uh we need a new algorithm to determine our uh our word consensus <laughs> you know yeah. as opposed to twitter which is probably where it is now yeah um uh I, i'm curious to learn a little bit about the milestones along the way too so launch the project we initially he came to you and said hey this is a great idea i had this breakthrough yeah you guys get together and say okay this bitcoin thing is taking off we think we can remix that a little bit. Did you have a clear uh, progress in your mind at the the implementation of the technology at that time, or did it take some iteration? Well, there are two parts of that. There, There is just the pure math part in how you implement a mm-hmm. consensus algorithm. But we knew from the beginning that the business model and the governance model were equally, if not more important. I mean, it's kind of cliche. It, 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 it is, you can have a great piece of technology 
but that's not enough, right? You, you have to have a whole lot more to be successful as an entrepreneur than just a really good piece of technology. And so, um, we went really deep in thinking about and designing the, ultimately the governance model for a public network. You know, when, in 2015, when he invented Hashgraph, we were, we knew we wanted to build a public network. Keep in mind, in 2015, Ethereum launched, <laughs> right? That's, yeah. It's that context, right? There wasn't anything else really outside of Bitcoin when all of this was started. And then he invented Hashgraph. And at about the same time, Ethereum launched. And so we, um, we, we thought that governance was going to be really important. And, um, and we spent a lot of cycles working both sides of that coin and, uh, and went deep and took our time. We didn't want to rush it. We at the time had no reputation in the industry and it was a brand new consensus algorithm that no one had heard of, hadn't been vetted really by the industry. So we said, let's, let's get some work behind us first before building a public network. So we focused on private networks, permission networks, and specifically with the credit union industry here in North America, and did that until the summer of 2017, when we decided, okay, it's it's time to go and build a public network. That's that's when it all kicked off. Mm. Yeah, I think I was listening to one of your talks, and you made a good recommendation that I'll, I'll throw in here too, which is the founder of Visa, D. Hawk, uh, wrote a yeah. book, one, one from Many. Visa, the rise of uh, chaotic, chaotic organization. Yeah, exactly. No, it's so D, I had the good fortune of about a year ago-ish, maybe it was 18 months ago, being able to speak with him. Um, so he, he is associated with some of my colleagues in the credit union industry, believe it or not. And, uh, and so he set up a call. I spoke with D for about an hour and the ideas that he outlined in this book, what he called chaotic systems. If you Google chaotic, you'll find it. You know, it's all out there are the same ideas. Decentralization and how do you use decentralization to build better governance models than what we've been using in the past? D is kind of like the original guy, uh, in terms of thought leadership and it influenced heavily what Visa was back in the 60s and early 70s when Visa was founded by, by D-Hawk and, and others. So uh, I read that book and marked it up and applied it here. And today, of course, what that means for us, what it looks like for us is a council that is different than anything else in the market in terms of governance. And, and it's today's 26 global blue chip organizations, universities, and uh, enterprises that are providing this decentralized governance of this global public network that is the, the Hedera network. And yeah, that's how it started. Why, why did you feel it was so important to have the blue chip organizations associated with the network as opposed to just, sure. you know, open market node operators or? Yeah. Well, it's all about trust. It's all about trust. There are really two aspects. There are two sides of that. One is just market trust in the ledger that is being used to represent the token. I mean, if you're building, if you're cre if you're a proof of stake system, not proof of work, proof of stake system like we are, and 
you're creating a token from scratch and you begin to sell that token into the market or the token is trading on exchanges, then um, there comes a time when the token has some real value. If, if you're lucky, the token begins to go up in value. And it will qu- quickly be the case that the market has to decide, do they trust the node operators? Because the node operators, like we talked about earlier, if a third of them or more are bad actors, then they can steal the money. And so you've got to bootstrap the value of that token to in its use in such a way where the market trusts the node operators and the va- ultimately the token gets dis- decentralized or distributed broadly enough in the market with a high enough market cap that it becomes impossible for a bad actor to buy up a third of the, the voting weight. Mm-hmm. And one way to do that is through enterprises. The enterprises run these nodes. They care far more about their reputations than they do this little side project called their Hashgraph. I mean, nobody really believes that a third of our council members are going to collude with one another to steal the money in the Hedera ledger. It's just mm. kind of laughable, right? And so um, there is this market trust uh, issue that's required. It, it's a lot different than if you go get a hundred of your buddies to run nodes in your network yeah. and, and the market trusting that they're not going to steal the money. Yeah, I, I feel like the natural question that just pops in my head is how do you get these guys on board? Uh, was that, was there a sales process or was there yeah, something more it, blockchain-y? <laughs> it was kind of, no, it was very much enterprise sales. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. really, that's what it was. And, and that's part of, it, it was part of the realization as well that enterprises are going to want to do business with uh, a layer one protocol that they can work with like an enterprise, like other enterprises, Mm. you know, people want to do business with others that are sort of like themselves. And there wasn't anything like that in the market then. And and there isn't really today outside of us, it's really focused on enterprise. I mean, if you want an SLA service level agreement for using Ethereum, who do you go to? There, there's (laughs) no one, right? And enterprises care about service level agreements. (laughs) And, uh, and so they, they needed to be able to use a layer one protocol. They wanted to be able to use a layer one protocol that had the properties that we have. And they wanted to be able to interface and work with an organization that looks and feels like they do. So we pitched that vision and we said, look, you're going to use it and you're going to govern it. So you get to do both. And, uh, and they're used to that model in a different way as well. I mean, if you look at the different infrastructure protocols out there today, just take an identity protocol, SAML or OIDC, any of these mainstream identity protocols. What it, what happens? There's an alliance of from some form. Maybe it's a formalized uh, standards body. And these organizations, these enterprises all participate in the standards body because they care about the evolution of that standard because they're building their businesses on it. And, and this just sort of followed that exact model for a layer one consensus protocol. And we were the only ones to do it. And is it set up structurally as a, you have the protocol, which just is what it is. There's no legal 
affiliation with that. Then there's the, uh, it was an LLC or C Corp. Is it structured as a nonprofit or is it explicitly? Right. Is there any kind of profit incentive for that? There's not a direct profit incentive in that sense to the council member. So it is an LLC. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Delaware based LLC. And when we started all this back in 2017, I mean, there was discussion about DAOs, but certainly the Wyoming DAO laws didn't exist. I mean, nothing was formalized like that. So what we did was we just took an LLC and wrote the bylaws to be effectively what today we would know as a DAO, meaning that the council members each govern, they vote, they each have one vote, and they participate in various committees to make decisions uh, about the protocol. But... um they don't get dividends. It's not like a C-Corp or a traditional LLC in the sense that you hope to get dividends from profits or revenues. It doesn't work that way. They do run nodes. And when they run nodes, for each transaction they process, they get paid a little bit per transaction, just like normal node operators do. But it's, you know, it's pittance compared to their normal revenue streams, their main revenue streams. Yeah. So they're not doing it for the revenue. They're doing it, again, because they wanted to have a layer one protocol that had the robustness and security properties that we have so that they can build enterprise applications on top of it. And they want to manage it like a standards body would manage it. It's the combination of the two that... um mm that causes them to want to participate. Yeah, it seems like one of the things, I've started a number of LLCs, and the one thing I've learned is that there's a lot of flexibility. You know, you write your own operating agreement, you effectively just determine how you want to operate and govern the company. And the only thing the government seems to care about is who owns, pay taxes, right? I mean, it's like, is who's if you're making money through this entity, are you paying us, the government? But yeah. other than that, I mean, you have a K-1 form. It's like, if you pay taxes, the government probably will just leave you alone to do whatever you want to do, I would think, right? Well, I, they haven't they haven't bothered us. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so it's, it's, I, I think you're probably right. What also is interesting is that the Wyoming Dow laws, when, when they created those, uh, it's part of their LLC law, state law. So they started with the LLC structure and then tried to augment it uh, to give the properties that, that basically we created from scratch in our bylaws. So we, mm. we sort of went at it separately, independently before they existed, but we ended up in the same effect, uh, same place effectively. Mm. Interesting. So where are you spending your time now? So you have this, that was, uh, what, we're 2022. So that was five years ago. That's five um, years. What's, ago. yeah. I mean, the project now is, is large. There's hundreds of, uh, apps on top of it, over a billion dollar market cap. Like things seem like they just took off a number of successful enterprise clients that are now a part of this. Uh, would you go to foundation? Is the LLC referred to as a foundation? Well, no, it's not. It's not. Okay. We do have, there is a foundation, but it's separate. There's the HBAR Foundation, which it just exists to help and grow the ecosystem. You know, they have their own treasury and they help grow the ecosystem, but it's independent of the council. Uh, it, it, what, what would you call it? Uh, you know, 
informally, I would call it a DAO. Technically, it, I don't know if it is or isn't, but it operates like that as an LLC. We just call it Hedera. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, uh, simple enough. Yeah, it's a network. It's a network. I mean, that that's what it is. It's a global network that uh, is governed and managed by these council members. So where are we today? See, yeah. Well, I, uh, one more quick question is popped my head. Sure. Do you see? Do you see this um, structure evolving in a, any significant way, or do you think of this as uh, you know you have you have these these groups, uh, organizations, or companies? They're effectively each sharing in the responsibility of governing the yeah. protocol. Well, that it has of- evolved. No, no, no. It has evolved a lot in, since 2017. So, you know, when you start a project like this, it, by definition, it's centralized. It was just me and Lehman, two people, right, doing everything. And then over time, what you want to do is bootstrap and decentralize everything, ideally. We, we focused on governance first and, you know, we had our governing, we had our first decentralized governing council in February of 2019. That's when we announced our first five council members. So that's been going for a long time. And then we turned our attention to decentralizing operations really last year. So 2021, the HBAR Foundation was created has its own management team, but the many of the members of, of our team in Hedera, my BD team fe- effectively, left and went to the HBAR Foundation. And what was left behind was product management, engineering, marketing. And we've just now, in the past six weeks, less than, um, have spun out all of those functions into a new organization we call Swirls Labs, that is independent of Hedera. And so we've decentralized operations out of Hedera. Governance has been decentralized and growing. We've decentralized operations. What's left over in Hedera is this effectively a standards body that are running nodes that create the network and, and governing, you know, things like when I say governing, to make it clear for people, there is a technical steering committee, TechCom, that will prioritize the features that go into the software. And then there's a legal and regulatory committee made up by attorneys primarily from various council members, and they help establish the regulatory posture of the network. And treasury committee, you know, there's the tokens still exist over there. They manage treasury. So they govern the network and uh, in all of its facets, but operations are now outside of it. I think yeah. this is final form, by the way, with one exception, there will be more nodes that are not enterprise members. The, you know, so there are the council members. The next step there is to add community run nodes to the network, which is soon. And then, and they'll be known, they'll be KYC. So we know who they are. The final step is allowing anonymous nodes, and that's on the path of scaling uh, as demand dictates. But the, you know, with that, I probably it's final form. Yeah. Do you think there would be limitations as to the influence, or somehow the size? Could a node become larger than one of the governing body nodes, or is that no, 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 no? So. Um, yeah, I mean, we're very careful about the way that we've structured 
um, sort of the token economics. And when I say token economics here, I'm not talking about, actually, I'm not even sure it's the right word. It's not, it's not the money aspects of the way the token is used, but rather how the token serves as a necessary component of securing the network and ensuring that it's not possible for a bad actor or even a small group of bad actors to buy up a third or more of the token supply. And so, uh, you know, when community nodes, for example, come online, there'll be a limit to the stake that they can represent. It's not like all a third of all the tokens could be staked to them. And now one node has a third of the voting power. There are limits that are put in place to prevent that and to ensure uh, further decentralization of the of the nodes. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Interesting. Yeah, I'm sure I ask a lot of people that I talk to how they came up with the structure of their formation. And uh, oftentimes, most times, people, founders will refer to other projects. Uh, I've heard Hedera come up in conversation as one of the inspiring uh, structural projects that that inspired them. Um, so yeah, hats off to you guys for at least coming up with, I think the enterprise approach is hard you know, to do enterprise sales, especially when you're thinking about a future of decentralization and no laws and blah, blah, blah. It's, yeah. it's to then turn it around and start selling into large companies. Convi- the pitch was, it was what, hey, spin up a server, dedicate some staff to this, and in return, you get access to both governing this protocol and the benefits from it, it's, it itself. Is that that's the pitch? That, yeah. Literally, that's the pitch. And, hey, I uh, right. <laughs> and we made it work. We made it. Well, look, we've got the best. So I, I, I know I'm biased and I'm one of the founders, Lehman are the founders. And so people will discount this. But I literally believe, I objectively believe that we have the best technology of any of the layer one protocols uh, because of its properties, because of its security properties and its efficiency in the way that it operates. I mean, just objectively, it's unparalleled. And then you take that message along with the world is about to change. You're going to be disrupted. You should be here with us on the, you know, with a, a front row seat to see how it unfolds over time. And you're going to end up using it. You're going to end up using the network. You're going to help to govern the network. It's going to be the next visa, right? That's a story. That's a compelling story. And, um, and it's changed. It, it, it has changed over time. That's the story that we were telling in 2018 and 2019. And we were able to bootstrap the council. And that was necessary to get to a point where we had critical mass in the size of the council and in their participation in the governance. We've reached that critical mass some time ago now. The the process now is very different. 
It's not what it was when we started years ago. Today, we can be far more selective in the members that we're inviting to participate. I mean, we not just anybody can join. We have to extend an invitation. And they have use cases. You know, part of the ticket, if you will, to participation is that if you are you going to be bringing use cases that are really going to drive network usage. That's where we are today. Obviously, it's not where we could start back then. Just market maturity and use case maturity, a whole lot of reasons. But it is it is different today. Yeah. And I I is it, I would imagine you think of it this way, where you have large enterprises that you can get on board, hit critical mass, prioritize organizations that that increase usage, trickle that downstream to now you're looking at mid-sized companies, smaller companies, and then kind of everybody. That- well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because every startup, I, that's a pretty strong statement. I, I'll stick by it. Every startup, the founders, they want to grow it into a giant business, right? I mean, it's typically the case. If, mm-hmm. When you're starting, you want to become a visa or something like it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so if we're good enough for global enterprises to participate in and, and build their enterprise class use cases on top of, we're good enough for the startups. And we have to make it ultra easy, no matter what, for everybody, for the developers in general. They're all developers. And they just maybe are working for a different type of company, you know, small, medium businesses, startups versus enterprise, but they're all developers. So you, we, we focus on uh, ease of use and real value in the APIs to the developers. And with enterprise use cases, we have lighthouse uh, users of the network that that everybody you know looks at and says, "Wow, if it's good enough for them, it's it's good enough for me." Yeah, I've heard you describe. I think uh, th- there are three categories of use cases with process process integrity, tokenization, and then decentralized markets. That that seems to be the three areas where you're seeing um, like real world adoption. Is that still sound right? Um, those sort of line up with the APIs. I mean, generally speaking, it's, it's a true statement, but it sort of lines those, those descriptions line up with our APIs. We have something called, called the Hedera consensus service that makes it possible for existing, um, databases or existing use cases that are centralized that already have value. I mean, they're in the market today and customers are using them. So they trust them to, they, they can differentiate their existing services from their competition by adding an additional layer of trust on the processes that they use. You could think of it that way and bringing those centralized product offerings to market. You know, how do we govern this centralized, uh, database, this centralized service? We're going to record that governance activity through our consensus service, the Hedera consensus service. Now we can provide transparency into the way that we filter your tweets, right? Yeah. Or something like that. that. That's the kind of idea. And so there's that. And then there is tokenization, of course. Tokenization is is going to be part of the economy. The whole world is going to be a tokenized world. Every product and service that exists is going to have a, a token associated with it. So we have that tokenization service there. And then markets just sort of 
grow from uh, a you know a combination of of additional transparency and use of HCS with the tokenization service, and that naturally leads to the efficiencies of of new markets that um, that you can build on yeah. top of markets. But I wouldn't say it that way today. I know I've said it that way yeah. in the past, and it, it's true. Yeah. But um, if I were if I were looking at specific use case categories uh, today, what I would say is that financial services and banking and stable coins and the like are going to be a big deal for us, I, I expect. I also think that ESG, the, if the ESG market is going to explode. I mean, there's so much momentum at a global macro level for this idea that as products are being made, you should track how much carbon is being used to build those products or deliver those services. And then you need to offset that carbon footprint by buying, you know, ideally you buy in tokens, renewable energy credits and or carbon, carbon offset, excuse me. And, um, and we're the natural platform for that. I mean, the organizations that care about that are giant, generally speaking. They certainly have the largest need. It's the big corporations that are having board level discussions about how do we become carbon neutral or negative? And that is our target market, right? I mean, we built ourselves to be the enterprise class, enterprise grade, uh, global network. And so I think that whole ESG space is going to be important for us. It already is important for us. And, uh, and it relates to use case, the other use case area. And, and that's sort of traditional, uh, supply chain and the tracking of those widgets that are being mm-hmm. manufactured and their carbon footprints combined with tokenization in a DeFi or CeFi context with this new tech stack, it all ties together, right? All these technologies come together to create this new economy that we've been talking about. And we're in the middle of each one of those. It's, it seems to me like specifically that when products go through the supply chain, they flow through different companies. Like one company has very little incentive to use decentralized technology if they're just managing a product from their start to finish. But it's once you pass it on to another company, right, then you have to, who tracks that? Where where does that get logged and record? So you you said uh, a little earlier, you see every product and service uh, using tokenization. ESG provides the incentive structure to measure, to tokenize every product, right? Every SKU that gets sold. Uh, I could imagine there's like a number associated with it or some kind of distilled way to understand the environmental toll it took for that thing to be made is that do you see that to be true Uh, absolutely well look one of our council members um avery dennison has recently gone to market with a platform that they call atma.io and what atma does is it makes it possible for manufacturers to track the the manufacture of their products from raw materials to products through the supply chain to distributors, ultimately out to consumers, and then end of life or 
you know, circularity back into raw materials for, for whatever it is that comes next, you know, in that sort of way. They already are doing this. They're tracking 22 billion items in Atma.io today with some of the largest companies in the world, significant number of these companies across apparel and retail and food services and healthcare. A natural part of that is the tokenization of each of those products. And they're using Hedera to do that tokenization. And related to that is the carbon aspects, the ESG aspects, where you can track the energy used to create those products in the first place. And as part of the programmatic workflow, the digital workflow associated with this supply chain, you interface with with uh, carbon markets to automatically buy the offsets needed for the production. All this is real and coming. Now, now not all of it is implemented. I mean, to be clear, I don't want to mislead anybody. The Atma platform exists. The integration with um, Hedera on the tokenization and tracking all of that um, is nearing completion. They've done lots of tests. They've already announced publicly to the market that they're doing this and then it's coming soon. I expect it to be very soon. The ESG part of it is the least mature. And part of the problem is just the lack of uh, the supply side of the, 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 the offset market. You know, there's not enough credits out there mm. to meet what will be the demand that, that already exists and is coming demand. And so that's the least uh, mature part of the market, but I think it's going to be a critical part in, in this industry is going to solve those problems. And we're going to be in the middle of it. Yeah, fascinating. What do you think about climate change generally? Do you think we're in a, in a behind, are we, <laughs> are we green, yellow, red? <laughs> are we, I've heard Elon Musk describe it as, yeah, it's real. Yeah, we're causing it. Yeah, it's going to be uh, a big, big challenge. But if we act like, if society continues to act like it's a really, really significant threat, then we'll be okay. But if we sort of forget about it or don't prioritize it, then we'll be in more trouble. Well, I think, that, you know, there there are questions that sort of follow each other in, and they influence your decision process for us as a society, right? One is, mm. uh, is it real? I think everyone thinks it's real. The second, you know, the question that follows from that is, is it caused by man? I think most people believe that, yes, it's caused by man. And then following that is, what is the solution? And is the solution worse than the problem itself? And therein, well, first off, can you measure it? Do you believe the models, which is really problematic, right? Because historically, these models are terrible when, when it comes to, you know, decades later, remembering what was predicted back then and measuring it against where we are today. So there's a problem there with just modeling in general. And then what can we do to solve the problem that's not going to cause more deaths than the climate change problem in and of itself? And that's wherein there is all the controversy. And, and you know, that's why we fight amongst our, ourselves is trying to figure out what price are we willing to pay? And is it going to be worse than the, the cure worse than the disease? So I don't, I don't know where we are and all of that. I'm not sure anyone <laughs> really does. I know a lot of people yeah. are highly opinionated and, uh, and I'm not an expert. And so I, you know, yeah. I defer, <laughs> but I think we can, I think that the market is going to result in 
us uh, addressing it. I do think that we're going to begin to address it. And um, and these carbon markets are going to be a big part of it and ultimately will be a central component of our economy as a result, you know, society trying to address it. So I think I think the carbon market idea is a big idea that's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. It seems to me like it, like the way to address it within our current um, capital market structure is you you create a financial incentive for the negative externality. Like you, if, if a company just dumps toxic waste in the river, if they're not paying a price for that, that cost that everyone else burdens, then there's no financial mechanism in place. So I, I, th- I see the successful move forward in terms of these credits is in introducing the collective price that we all pay for individual or corporate, um, you know, benefits yeah. that they gain from, yeah, trash. Oh, I, I agree. I think, and, and I think that what's going to happen is there's going to be regulation. It probably will start in Europe, uh, already has to some degree, where companies of some minimum size are going to be required to track uh, the amount of carbon that is going into the production of their products and services. And it's not just their processes. They're going to be required to understand and represent the carbon footprint of the products flowing into the supply chain, you know, the carbon upstream, the carbon usage upstream in their supply chain, which has really interesting implications. It means that if you're going to be using a layer one protocol to deliver whatever it is you're delivering, then you're going to care a lot about the carbon footprint of that layer one protocol. Right. If you're a proof of work layer one and you're under these types of regulatory regimes that we anticipate are coming, you've got some real problems. <laughs> there's a, there's an issue there, you know, because anybody that uses you is going to have to account for the carbon that you as a layer one protocol are, are using. And, and for that reason, I, again, I'm very, uh, I'm, I'm very happy coincidentally that Hashgraph, because it's so efficient in terms of its, of its uh, cost per transaction, it's also the greenest of all the layer ones. And, you know, and, and we're not the ones saying that. It's uh, the, the academic world that's saying that. University College London wrote a report comparing a bunch of layer ones and um, wrote that we are the most efficient. Hey, that's more great. than that. Yeah, more than that. So, well, okay, to, to, to sort of characterize it, we are... I think it was 14,000 times more efficient than Ethereum 2.0, not one, but 2.0, proof of stake Ethereum. Not surprisingly, we're 93 million times more efficient than Bitcoin, but that's proof of work. So no, no big surprise there. What is, is surprising or was surprising was that if you compare us on a cost per transaction basis uh, in terms of electricity, uh, I shouldn't say cost electricity usage per transaction basis, we're um, 74 times more efficient than the Visa network, which is a really interesting statement because it means that our existing payment rails can be greener, significantly greener than they are today. And we as a layer one are already there doing it today. That's interesting. 74 times greener using less measured as the amount of electricity used to make a transaction. 
per transaction. I would imagine that's Visa's probably owning everything start to finish, right? They own the servers, they own- They're as centralized as you can be. Yes. I mean, they partner with acquiring banks, but ultimately they're- So you guys- In the infrastructure, yes. Would it be, is it correct to think about maybe the reason for that 74-fold difference being uh, Hedera itself is not maintaining any node validators? So that would be a, that would be a cost that would be held by the node validators. Like- oh no no no! That includes our node validators. I mean, we're we're so when we calculate it, we're calculating what the cost is based on all of the nodes that are processing the network. So it's not just it's we're not wow. sort of cheating by saying that the node validators are covering their costs for running their own nodes. No, that's super interesting. Wow, that's a great, I mean, the fact that you said it was serendipitous, it was the way, just kind of happened to work out that way. <laughs> Fantastic. It's all in the math, yeah. Do, 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 you see, uh, do you see that being a significant long-term threat to Bitcoin and, and people who are very much, you know? I think it's always been a threat. I've always thought yeah. that if Bitcoin were going to scale, you know, really scale on a global basis, they've got to solve the that consumption problem. I... You know, I, I don't know. I don't know how you, I, I think that, I think that there's a, a good chance that, um, international regulation is going to require something. I don't know if it means that you can offset the energy usage for Bitcoin miners. I mean, maybe that is the answer. Maybe that is solution. I, I don't know, but, but there's a real issue there that has to be addressed. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I saw one graph that, made me think twice about all this, where it was uh, the amount of land, it was a picture of Africa, and it showed the amount of land it would take to power the United States, and then Europe, and then the entire world. And it's like, it's a tiny little square. This is sun, sun power, solar power. And I, I don't know, I just wonder if that if our how we're kind of obsessing over energy production, we're pulling it out of the ground. Now we're have various ways of getting it from alternative energies is that I, I just wonder if within our lifetimes, you look back and say, oh, we, we get all the energy from the sun and it's set up in massive solar power plants in the middle of the desert. And that there's just, we no longer have a problem with that, but maybe. I don't know. Um, I, you know, we've made great progress. I think that there's still some fundamental advances needed in green energy. I think that we'll eventually get there. Until then, I think that, you know, legacy uh, sources of energy are going to have to live alongside uh, green energy as it matures over time. I mean, the solar panels today are far more efficient than they were 20 years ago, right? And so we've made good progress. But there's still a long way to go to to yeah. really be there. Yeah. Um, are you personally putting stuff out? Uh, I know you have a Twitter that you're fairly active with. Um, mm-hmm. Are you writing anything you want to throw out there? I'm sure we'll have links oh, to all the Hedera Well, thank stuff. you for asking. I, I don't. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I probably should. But um, the work of getting us to where we have, you know, where we are today, I am very deeply involved, have been deeply involved in operations, right? So... Lehman and I started all of this and he solves the hard math problems and helps to build the the technology in terms of what it needs to be. 
I've been deeply involved in all the business side and operations in, in getting us to where we are now in decentralized governance and decentralized operations. We have, I do have the opportunity at this stage to begin to level up and think about what Swirls Labs might do. So Swirls Labs, remember, is the people, are the people that came out of Hedera uh, doing most of the work. Swirls Labs continues to do that work on behalf of Hedera under contract from Hedera. So Hedera pays Swirls Labs to do that work, but Swirls Labs will do other things. And um, right now we're just looking at the ecosystem and the market and trying to determine where we can add value to the Hedera ecosystem and go where we're needed the most. And, and, but we don't have answers today. And so that mm. that is interesting. That's refreshing, frankly, to be able to take a step back and look at have a global view from a product and service perspective at the whole ecosystem and say, where can we go help beyond where we were able to help when we were just part of Hedera formally? Mm, that's an interesting. But I'm not writing about it. I, I, that's, that's a long-winded answer to say, no, I, I don't write blogs today or, or I'm not tweeting every day. Um, I, you know, we tweet news as it's warranted and uh, we've had our hands deep involved in, in everything else. Yeah. Well, hey, podcast. That's great. <laughs> yeah, podcast from time to time. <laughs> yeah. Well, so many more things I'd love to ask you about, but maybe we'll save it for another time. I'd love to hear, uh, you mentioned pre-show about the investment or the foundation's investment into Spencer uh, Dinwiddie's Dwin- Dwin- uh, Galaxy, which is fresh out the press. And um, yeah. yeah. Well, well, we could- there's that. Yeah, exactly. Galaxy picked up a $26 million round. I think they closed a $26 million round about a week ago. And, uh, you know, they're off creating the, you know, the creator's galaxy. So it's a very interesting and and cool project that sort of centers around fan tokens. That's right. Yeah. This this one's going to bother me if I don't ask you, where where does swindles, swindles come from? The word swirls, 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 sorry. Worlds. Yeah. It's so it's S W I R L D S. It's a mashup of shared worlds and it goes back to the vision, the original vision. It, when we started all of this, the vision was really pretty simple. It still is pretty simple. And, and that is that you should be able to reach out and carve out a slice of cyberspace and do whatever you want in this walled garden, if you will and invite whomever you want to participate. So it could be friends or family or colleagues. It could be a social app or it could be a Word document, the equivalent of a, a, a Word document. It could be a game. It could be anything you want it to be, but it doesn't require that you and the other participants in your shared world trust a third party to be the referee or you know manage the process at all. It, it's, it's a shared world that's trustless. This was the original motivation for Lehman to create Hashgraph in the first place. Then we decided, well, we really need a layer one protocol to be the foundation. And then anybody that wants to can take that same software, the software that we use to create Hedera, and create their shared worlds and integrate or use the services of this layer one. And so we we envision a world 10 years from now where 
the use of the layer one Hedera is is everywhere. It's ubiquitous. And it's also the case that people have the normal apps that they use, sort of web 2.0 apps, in their own private shared worlds that they, you know, that they build and, and use themselves. But but that's where the term comes from. It's shared worlds. Yeah, right. It, I'm just getting flashbacks to Ready Player One, James Halliday, the guy who created Oasis, which is the program they use. <laughs> I love yeah. it. Man, so this yeah. is super fun, man. Thanks for sharing your time and uh, congrats on all the progress and everything. I, I wish you guys uh, best of luck with everything. Thank you so much, Mike. It's good talking with you. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts tweet about it or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Thank you.